Between 2010 and 2015, Greg McClymont was a Labour Member of Parliament for much of that period as Shadow Pensions Minister. He now works for IFM Investors, an Australian institutional investor owned by pension funds that specialises in infrastructure and illiquid assets. We talk about government pensions policy, the Mansion House speech, consolidation, Labour pensions policy, and reflect on the 2010-15 period of pension policy. I must also apologise for being an idiot and getting my settings wrong. So there's a very faint echo on the recording, which I hope you won't find too off-putting. It was a good interview with Greg, so I didn't want to waste it. And it also seemed unkind to ask him to go through the whole thing all over again. We are now recording. Look, it's, it's really good to talk to you again. Brief glimpse of you. You haven't changed at all since I saw you last, which is slightly worrying. So the years have obviously been kind to you. Not sure about that. <laughs> I knew you were at the People's Partnership, People's Pension, for a while. I didn't know anything about IFM, so maybe we should start there. Tell me a bit about IFM. Yeah, so IFM Investors is, a, is an infrastructure investment manager, which is owned by 17 Australian pension funds. The biggest owners' funds are the construction workers, white office, office workers, hospitality workers, and health workers, Tom. Mm-hmm. But there's 17 of those funds that own IFM. So basically, when the Australian government in the late 80s, the, the Labour government, came to an agreement with the trade unions around wage rises with an eye on keeping wage inflation down. There was a grand bargain, and central to that bargain was the creation of these industry-wide pension funds, sector by sector, Mm. which the Aussies call industry funds. And the funds created IFM to, to invest in unlisted assets for them, originally and specifically infrastructure from the early 90s. And now they have us invest in in private equity as well. And how long have they been operating in the UK? Uh, They've been in the UK for about 20 years, Tom. Actually, but a good example, when PIP was set up, my understanding is that the architects of PIP wanted IFM, you know, to be the institution that delivered PIP originally. I'm sorry, for those who don't know PIP, the, the, the investment platform, yeah? Yes, the pension infrastructure platform. So that emerged just to jog memories out of George Osborne's quest in 2012 for $20 billion in, in infrastructure investment. He was looking to UK pension funds. So the National Association of Pension Funds and Pension Protection Fund basically took a, a lead role in, in setting up that institution. And the model, as I understand it, was the IFM model, i.e. the funds should create their own manager for the obvious benefits of reducing intermediation creating immediate scale access to the best deals. And I think there were conversations, in fact, I know there were conversations with IFM at the time around IFM delivering that for the UK pension funds. That didn't happen a decade ago. Since then, IFM's grown quite a lot globally, Tom. Mm -hmm. So it's probably one of the top five infrastructure managers by assets globally. So you think of your Macquarie's and your global infrastructure partners and so on. IFM's kind of in that group with a large about £65 billion sterling in infrastructure assets. 
including a number of assets in the UK, Manchester Airports Group, which is Manchester's Stansted and East Midlands Airports, which IFM owns alongside the nine Manchester and Greater Manchester Councils, um, Arkiva, the Broadcast Terrestrial Towers, the M6 Toll Road, uh-huh. which we own alongside GLIL, which is the UK Local Government Pension Schemes Infrastructure Platform, and Angling Water, which we own particularly with one of the very large Canadian pension funds, Canada Pension Plan. So you can have some sympathy. I mean, Guy Opperman used to wang on about this, about all these foreign pension funds coming over here and buying our assets. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but that was that was the sense of it. And it's interesting hearing you talking about George Osborne. This, this is not new, politicians being interested in UK pension funds investing in the UK economy. But that Mansion House speech and and everything that came out of that and and that current political agenda around getting the UK pension funds to invest in the UK economy, I mean, this must be music to your ears, right? Yeah, I think it's it's really, and you're absolutely right, Tom, of course, if there's nothing new under the sun, this debate has, we've seen it before, haven't we? But not, I think, with this degree of focus Hmm. and interest from both sides of politics. And I think that reflects, at a, a very basic level, the reality that there's broad agreement that the UK's got a, you know, an investment problem that capital investment's been lagging for a long time. And if you're a politician looking at the UK's domestic savings, UK pensions look by far the biggest source. Now we both know, and listeners to the podcast will know. Of course, it gets complicated quite quickly because of the the nature of those savings, Hmm. i.e. defined benefit corporate schemes, which are, you know, largely um, in runoff. But at that basic level, that's that's where the interest comes from. I don't disagree with you. I'd argue from a politician's point of view, it's more of a growth problem. That's what they're worried about is bootstrapping the UK economy and getting, getting some growth back into the machine because... With the demographics pushing against us, this is only going to get harder from here as the population gets older, in economic terms, less productive. You know, where does that growth come from? And you can understand them looking at all that juicy pension fund money and saying, well, can, can we use a bit of that to, to, to get the machine moving a bit faster? So, so I was talking to a DB scheme last week. And they were saying to me, look, we, we do quite a lot of this already. I mean, there, there are bits of this that are happening already. And they were laughing about the mansion house agreement and getting up to 5%. And he was saying, well, if we did that, we'd have to go backwards. You know, we really do much more than that. But you touched on the fact that the, the UK pension system is quite fragmented. You know, we've got DB, we've got DC, we've got different types of DC. So coordinating and corralling that and making it happen in a in a structured way is not it's not simple right is that is that is that what we focus on now is that what the mansion house sort of just fired the starting gun on yeah i think that's a an astute assessment tom capital investment for growth absolutely they're looking what can what can fire growth and capital investments seen as critical to that and more broadly yes it's one thing to to will the end but of course, willing the means in this case is more difficult to use an old political mm. aphorism. How do you actually take these these different aspects and turn it into actually something which can can meet the objective of greater UK investment in unlisted assets? A, a couple of observations. I mean, it is definitely the case. I don't think the politicians are wrong that relative to the 
you know, to the Australian and Canadian systems in particular, but also the Dutch system. The pension funds in those systems have larger allocations to unlisted assets. Hmm. Broadly speaking, and by pension funds, I mean the, the eight big Canadian, nine big Canadian public sector funds, the Australian industry funds, so the sector-wide private sector occupational funds, and the Dutch sector-wide occupational funds. But as you are suggesting, the challenge in the UK is, of course, that the pension fund system doesn't look like that. There's there's different parts to it. And of course, the biggest bit, the the corporate DB bit, which, you know, kind of two trillion or so, for reasons we both understand very well, they're generally speaking not looking to do that type of investment. And why would so they? So I think, so what does Mansion House then be- become? Well, we know it's focused on DC and then we're into a world again that, you know, you in particular have swum in for, for many years. You have a lot of, I'd call it a, the history of DC in the UK really is a history of, of individual pensions yep. from the 1980s. So actually the system reflects those origins. It's not geared to, to large collective investments and in unlisted assets. Clearly nesting the people's pension is these very big auto-enrollment funds are, are something different in that sense. But in total, I think there's a real, it's complex, isn't it? There's all the issues we know about platform, plumbing, daily liquidity, pricing, and so on and so forth. It's a platform question, but it's also actually a, a philosophy question, I would say, Tom. Yeah, just expand on that. I mean, I, I think I know where you're going with that, but just expand on that. Yeah, so if you look at the if you look at the industry funds who, who created and own IFM, from the very beginning, they had a, an attitude, which was we want to be investing in, in long-term assets to get the illiquidity premium and that reflected it reflected structurally the fact that they most of their assets were going to be the default fund assets so if you think to the retail side of things tend to be you know people who are a bit more like their own cio and more likely to move their money and therefore have to be more careful with liquidity and having enough liquidity so definitely the structure of the industry funds in australia made it possible to to invest heavily in illiquids but also it was a broader philosophy thing. We're going to invest together collectively. Right. That gives us the scale necessary to get access to the to the high quality investments. Because there is an issue here around, you know, there's it's very competitive, Tom, to invest in unlisted assets, the real high quality premium assets. You know, it's a global market to coin the cliche, lots of large lumps of institutional capital to deliver in behalf of the members. You have to be getting access to the best deals. And the way to do that is to have scale and expertise. And it takes you back to the fragmentation in UK, DC. You know, we're not dealing with two or three lumps of capital, are we? We're dealing with lots of different institutions, different approaches, different governance, different ownership. And that definitely complicates things a lot. That's really interesting because, I mean, first of all, there was that very explicit government agenda, which, as you've touched on already, I don't think Labour would oppose, of fewer, bigger, better-run pension schemes. But then also, building on your point around the individualism versus collectivism, you know, we see the expansion of default funds, we see IGCs getting reversed into contract-based pensions. 
There is a, I mean, we can talk a bit about Lifetime Provider or Pot for Life as well, perhaps, but broadly, there's a sense towards a more collectivist approach, right? It, and, you know, as, as, as a precondition to, to the kind of stuff you talked about here. I think, interesting, and you're absolutely right, Auto enrollment has moves in that direction, certainly with, you know, the very big, what I call the universal schemes, nesting the people's pension, you know, that are kind of offering a pension to everyone. I guess one caveat I would put in place is, in just using the Australian example, so it's it's absolutely the case that the drive to unlisted was piloted by these these industry wide pension funds, what the Australians call profit to member, Tom. So you know what we would think of as as your kind of nest of the people's pension in particular. I think the challenge is, as we know, that a lot of the money in in UKDC sits in these very sophisticated insurance-based institutions. And I think the challenge here is that obviously there's scale at the company level, but, you know, we're into the stuff that, again, you in particular will be familiar with. How do you get the demand side right? We know that, you know, most employers, certainly all but the very biggest, they tend to be looking at, at pensions for understandable reasons, given the fact that their staff aren't engaged in them and are unlikely ever to be very engaged in them. They want it as simple as possible mm-hmm. and as you know, cost-efficient on the way in. So I think that's a difference from, from Australia. And that cost-efficient difference doesn't just apply to the, the sort of contract-based side. I know there's master trust in there now as well, but if we call that the contract-based side, we, we also have that challenge, of course, in the market more generally. It's the case that Australia, and I'll finish on this point, it's the case that Australia, when they were doing it 30 years ago, they were very focused on, we want to get into unlisted assets infrastructure at volume and will drive down the cost by doing it through our own collective institution, mm. IFM investors, this was the industry funds. But nonetheless, you know, the cost of that was was greater than, you know, the kind of the archetypal, you know, 30, 40, 50 basis points all in annually that we have in the AE market. So, I mean, you've kind of alluded to this indirectly. I mean, we've got VFM coming, value for money, as, as a framework to drive as part of that bigger, better, fewer pension schemes. And it remains to be seen how hard they pull on that lever and how effective it is and how quickly it impacts pension provision in the UK, but it will undoubtedly drive some consolidation. We've got similar initiatives from the FCA. We've got consumer duty. We've got value for money metrics there as well. I guess my question to you is, is the current regulatory landscape, this weird FCA TPR structure, is that, is that, is that a barrier to making all of this happen? Yeah, really interesting question. So, so one thing I would note at the outset, Tom, is you know, there's been quite a lot of talk more recently and, and that kind of VFM and benchmarking hmm. aspects of learning from, from the Australian approach. One thing I think it's really important to, to note is that actually the success of the Australian system in delivering these investments and in unlisted assets, it actually has nothing to do with those aspects of policy. Those aspects of, in the Australian context have only come in in the last couple of years, two or three years. So the what's called the your future, your super, which is the benchmarking, the value for money tests in the UK vocabulary. That's actually only come in since 2020, 2021, 22. And that takes me back to, I think, that the fundamental challenge for the UK is is having the right incentives in alignment for asset allocators. And I, I don't think that 
I think VFM, while it might be a good thing in its own terms, Tom, I think it's hard to see, at least as far as I, I view it at this stage, how it drives that sort of approach, just to note finally again on this point, there's been quite a lot of concern in Australia that what the benchmark approach does is it leads to kind of herding. Mm. And because it's difficult to comprise a benchmark of unlisted allocations, your know, benchmarks tend to be of listed assets that, of course, you can track the price of straightforwardly. That then again potentially militates against holding unlisted assets. So maybe I would say that I think government has to be careful that what it's doing with the left hand on VFM doesn't kind of get in the way of what it's trying to do with the right hand in terms of greater allocations to um, productive finance, as it describes it. But one of the immediate reactions I heard post-Mansion House was, I can paraphrase it, is politicians shouldn't be telling us how to invest our members' pension schemes. You know, we're the trustees, we know what we're doing, don't interfere, we know our fiduciary duty, don't try and redefine that. But that that sort of plays back into the fewer, bigger, better run pension schemes, doesn't it? It's that that fragmentation issue is going to continue to be a problem until and until that's resolved. It's going to be quite hard to change things a bit. And just my final question on this is: Do you see this as a this should be done because it's good for the members, or is this a it's okay for politicians to tell the pension schemes how they should invest? Or is it both at the same time? Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it. I think the reality is I've got a lot of sympathy for the for the trustee approach. In reality, given the amount of government money over the years which has gone into tax relief, it's unsurprising that government feels it has a stake in this. And then at the more, how should we put it, being more pragmatic, given the, the, the challenge of the UK economy, which you identified at the outset, I think it's... It's sort of inevitable. That train's left the station. Politicians are focused on this. That being said, your point about fewer, bigger schemes is absolutely right. When we talk about aligning incentives, large schemes invest in these assets as a matter of course. It's part of a sophisticated asset allocation and diversification. When you've got the scale and expertise to invest successfully in these complex private markets. What I've been saying probably for about a year, a year and a half now, Tom, is that one way that policy might approach this is to persuade pension funds to, to do an IFM, to do an Australia, and just set up their own manager. So basically learn the lessons of PIP, but focused on defined contribution. And that way you get the scale quickly, Tom, without having to merge the schemes. And we've already um, seen we've some pooling initiatives, right? Yes, exactly. So you've got the asset pool in LGPS, you've got GLIL, which I mentioned earlier, which actually Nest is, I think, an investor in, but is not an owner of. And and what I've been suggesting is that look at that model where pension funds actually are the owners of an investment vehicle because you get the alignment then because they're in charge and also you get the scale because everyone clubs together. And I'd emphasize, like, you know, these investments, we haven't spoken about the, about the supply side much, Go on. But these investments, you know, they're, they're, they're complex, as we know. Private equity, where the government's focused, growth equity in particular. I mean, there's, you know, there's a real issue there with making sure you're competing with huge lumps of global capital, that you're actually accessing, you know, the best possible transactions for members. So I think we're agreeing, you're right, if we want alignment, it has to be from scale and expertise 
I think realistically, the quick way to get to that, relatively quick, compared to VFM as a means of consolidation, is probably that the funds themselves set up a, a vehicle. That absolutely makes sense. And that, my next question is going to be, look, what other barriers are there? You know, is there, is there a lack of expertise? Is it about the fees? You know, what's, what's stopping this happening now? Yeah, it's really striking, isn't it, Tom? If you look at the GAD, the GAD calculations that came out alongside the Mansion House speech, they state that the, the fees in private equity would need to have to deliver the value for money which the government referred to in its Mansion House Compact. Hmm. Um, you know, that extra pension pot value for members that the fees have to have. So, I mean, that's that's the government themselves saying that, and that's absolutely critical, which again takes you back to vehicle, I guess. So you can wait for, for there to be a very small number of huge funds, but I don't know if government's prepared to wait that long. Hmm. Um, an alternative, I guess, is, is vehicle a collective vehicle, expertise, absolutely. I mean, we know how private equity market works. It delivers very, very good returns at the top end. You know, very good returns. But that's, you know, because those returns are so strong, there's a lot of competition to access managers and, and investments. So again, you're back to that, actually, how do you, how do you ensure that UK pension members, pension savers are actually getting access to the, you know, to the really good stuff? And then you're into, of course, the focus on the UK versus global, which complicates it as well, which speaks to your point about, you know, the, you can will the end, but willing the means is more complicated. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So, so you, you, you've mentioned the, the, the politics a couple of times. How would, you know, we've got a general election next year. How would this be different under a Labour government? Yeah, that's a very good question, Tom. I'm not entirely sure because a lot of things will, you can have it, you can have a, a, a position 18 months out from an election and things can change a lot in that time and so on and so forth. But, I mean, what we can see, as you alluded to yourself, is that at a broad level of principle, there's agreement on both sides that we need capital investment to drive growth and pension funds are the obvious place to find that. There was a review which um, Jim O'Neill did for the Labour Party um, last year on basically venture capital and growth equity. I think it was called Startup Scale Up. And it sets out pretty clearly in the pension section, you know, Labour's view that absolutely that sector needs to see greater financing from from pension funds and on the DC side in particular. But that's how you actually do it. I say it's it's not straightforward. But there's definitely, you know, you're going, they're going to inherit, as you've noted, an economy where growth is going to be an imperative. So I think there'll be quite a lot of energy behind this, but how one achieves it. I mean, we know from the all the documents published alongside Mansion House, there's three sets of levers, isn't there? There's potentially the the PPF lever. Mm. There's the LGPS lever, although that's already happening, but you can speed up the pooling consolidation. And then there's the DC lever, which I think is, it's the least clear how you do the DC, which is why, again, I, I think it's worth looking at the kind of, set up your own vehicle pension funds. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I want to stay with the politics for a minute. So you were you were MP, oh, correct, forgive me if I get this wrong, you were the MP for Cumbernauld, Kilsyth and Kirkintullock East. Is that right? 
has a very impressive pronunciation. You were nearly there in the Ach Kirkintalach, <laughs> otherwise perfect. Is that the longest constituency name? That was my first question. Did you? Have it, a it certainly was. It was in 2010. Yes. So I mean, I, and since the new boundaries and new constituencies are only coming in at the next election, I would say with some confidence it continues to be the longest. Name. Nice. So, look, you, you've obviously stayed close to politics. You know, we can see the door open for after that awful wipeout in 2015, which you were a victim. You know, things have changed in Scotland. Would you Would you go back there? It's remarkable, isn't it, how, you know, for so long it seemed that the Scottish National Party was kind of impervious to the typical kind of political trends, the, the swing of the pendulum, time for a change, notion, inevitable failures that all parties have in government. They seemed impervious to, to the effect of those kind of things, but things do seem to have changed. Certainly, you know, it looks like politics is more competitive in Scotland. Mm. I mean, I'm happy what I'm doing now, but I certainly keep a, a close eye on the Scottish and, polit- and UK political scene as you have to do in my job. And it's going to be really interesting, Tom, to see what what happens, I assume, next year. I'm guessing October next year, but uh, you never know. So there's still quite a lot of water to go under the bridge. That's the only thing I would say. One thing I learned um, in politics was that, and of course it's a cliche, that things can change so quickly. You know, mood can change quickly, and that can have a transformative effect. But certainly it looks... You, know, you would say there's a high probability, wouldn't you, of, of Keir Starmer being Prime Minister, certainly. If you were putting money today, that's probably where your money would go. I mean, I, I was shocked in 2015. And by the way, I used the word awful, which would probably antagonise any SNP listeners to this podcast. So I apologise for that. But it was it was quite striking in 2015 how many really good Labour MPs, yourself among them, just, just got flushed out with the tide in 2015, as did some good Liberal Democrat MPs in the South. I mean, Steve Webb was a good ministry, he was a good constituency MP. Maybe we could argue about whether he was a good minister or not, we should come back to that. But, you know, they they suffered a similar carnage south of the border. And, in, you know, there was Boris with his huge majority in 2019, and look how that's dissipated. So, so I mean, you're right, things change and can change quite fast. Don't they? Yes, and, and it's certainly awful as far as I was concerned, Tom. <laughs> yeah, and I remember because, of course, it was... It wasn't a surprise. The deck was set in Scotland well before May 2015. So, you know, I had a, had a reasonable sense of what was coming. But, of course, Steve Webb losing was much more surprising. Mm. Although I would argue related to Scotland because, if you remember 2015, I think the Conservatives very effectively posed the question of a Labour minority government dependent on the SNP. Mm-hmm. And arguing if that was, you know, good for Britain and what did English voters think about that? I suspect that had a big effect on on the Lib Dems and seats like Steve. And I think Steve was a, a good minister. I mean, it's to be a minister of state and have a significant accomplishment to your name, that's not straightforward. And I think the flat rate state pension is that accomplishment and also you know, the rolling out of auto enrolment. Yeah. I would absolutely put him in the successful minister camp. Yeah. Did you enjoy being a shadow? Yes. I mean, I think with the advantage, didn't it? Between us, we did it for nine years, him five and me from 2011 onwards. And that, of course, gives you time to actually, certainly on my side in opposition, where it's it's difficult because the resourcing is quite limited in terms of, you know, research and, hmm. 
and policy support, it, it gave me time to to really, I suppose, get to grips with it. And I think I'm, one thing I was always pleased by is that we, we being the Labour Party at that stage, supported the state pension reform. Yeah. You know, because it's there's such a incentive in opposition just to oppose everything. And I was pleased that we were able to, you know, be in that position of broadly supportive while asking a series of questions. And then an auto-enrollment. In retrospect, the, the divisions, of course, always look bigger than they are. You know, I was pushing harder on protections for for savers, I guess. But in the end, a lot of those were delivered in that government. So, yeah, I look back on it fondly. I certainly learned a lot. That's for sure. It, it, it feels just in the last year as if as if the Labour Party, the current Labour Party, has just kind of renewed its interest in pensions. You know, the Rachel Reeves comments around, which sort of echo Jeremy Hunt's, or you know, I'm sure there are policy differences there, but you know, her interest in the investment side. And so, you know, my sense is. Whoever's in charge, whether it's Labour or, or Conservatives, you know, this, it feels like we're at the front end of quite a lot of change in the pension sector over the next few years to come. I don't know if you'd comment on that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Tom, and we, we might say it's ever been thus, <laughs> yeah. certainly since, since I've been around. I, I think that's right. And you have in the Labour side, alongside Rachel and Treasury, and you've got in Liz Kendall, who's a shadow working pension secretary, somebody that's got... A lot of experience, actually. If I remember rightly, Tom, Liz Kendall was Harriet Harman's advisor when Harman was um, with Social Securities. It was called then Secretary in 97. Mm. You can see that someone who's been around a long time, who spent a lot of time looking at health and social care in particular, but previously Social Security. Labour side, I think there you've got a deep bench. And then in the government side, you know, you've got uh, you know Jeremy Hunt, and we've well, pensions ministers changed recently, but you know a lot of activity on the on the DWP side is side as well. So, as you say, there's there's a lot going on. I think it's. I tell you what, I think it's difficult, Tom. It's, it, finding a, a golden thread, for want of a better phrase, that gives you something which can allow you to define the things that you think are, are very important, quite important and not so important when you're doing policy in pension space, because otherwise there's just so many directions you can go in. So I think you need that that golden thread or lodestar, which guides you. Final question Final then, because question, we've, because we've, we've got, got the agenda the around agenda fewer, around, bigger, better on pension schemes, investing in the UK economy, and that makes some that makes sense. Some but do you feel like that's not like enough that's of a golden thread? Do you feel like it needs like more of an articulation of purpose above that? That's a pretty good place to start. What I'd be very keen on as well is just keeping in mind that auto-enrollment's been a success and that success is based on a clear-eyed view of, of behaviour. The inertia is fundamental for the majority of people when it comes to pensions. And, you know, there's just a wealth of, of evidence from behavioural economics on this. Personally, I would always keep that in mind as well. Go with the grain of how the majority of individuals behave. And of course, where there's a group of, of individuals who are engaged and who are making choices, whether that's in SIPs or elsewhere, policy, of course, should enable that, but not lose sight of the of the reality that for most people, what they're going to need is a, is a well-run pension, which is well-run without 
them having to engage. Because after all, I mean, who's got the time? I mean, life gets busier and busier, doesn't it? It gets hectic, more hectic all the time, leaving aside all the other issues about not wanting to think about getting old. So I would say scale and harnessing inertia, that would be near the top of my agenda, I think. Wise words. Good to talk to you, Greg. Thanks very much for your time. Pleasure, Tom. So there you go. Greg was a great contributor to pension policy 10 years ago, and it was lovely to catch up with him again now. It would be no bad thing if he ended up back in Parliament. Thanks for listening. Do please like, subscribe, leave glowing reviews and tell your friends. The podcast was edited by Ross Burns.